Wealthmanagement.com presents Success Zone, a podcast dedicated to bringing financial advisors sweeping insights beyond the market headlines to help them become more savvy about the industry, transform their practice, enhance their marketing skills, and take their business to the next level. Listen in for a wealth of information that includes remarkable success stories and expert advice from the industry's key players and most successful and skilled financial professionals. Welcome to part three of a three-part podcast series with Wells Fargo. Over these three podcasts, we've answered some of the most pressing questions advisors have about buying, selling, and transitioning their practice. Today, we'll discuss the trends in book buying since the market downturn with John Williamson and David Grau Jr., president of Succession Resource Group. All right, guys, we're going to start with this 10-point plan that you guys talk about in your presentations all over the country. Where do we begin? Hey, Matt, it's John Williamson. Thanks for having us on today. The 10-point plan came from feedback that we learned from practices that had successfully managed through a practice and merger acquisition over the years. And we just adopted these best practices that we learned from the field and together into just a comprehensive list and just provided briefings to the field, either on the phone or to small or large groups along the way. So just to highlight a few, one would be, do you have a continuity plan and is it current? And would you be willing to share that continuity plan with the potential seller as you have the practice merger and acquisition conversation? Those are things that a seller is gonna be interested in. Do you understand your third-party financing resources? We work with several third-party lending institutions. They're all good at what they do. The processes can be different. Some buyers have taken the extra step to even become pre-qualified to downstream and get ready for that part of the process. And then finally, just understanding what it is you're interested in and the geography of it. Is there a part of the country where you're interested in making an acquisition or a type of business, a different location, a certain staff makeup, all the all the intangibles that come with bringing in a practice and integrating them into your business? Those are a few of the highlights from the 10-point plan. Things have fundamentally changed. And I remember in 08, we talked a little bit about this in one of the previous podcasts this could very well be the straw that broke a lot of advisors back, and they're like, "Just I'm just done with this. David, what sort of things have you seen in the last 45 days with selling and buying books of business? Great question. It's definitely been an interesting month, month and a half here recently, where both buyers and sellers are coming back to the market they're re-engaging you know with the process of buying and selling where in march and april i think we saw 22 percent of our deals hit the pause button they didn't stop doing the deal but but they did hit the pause button they needed to regroup they needed to deal with client needs uh now that they're re-engaging in this process they're doing it with cautious optimism and we are seeing less all cash deals is the short answer you know up until the end of 2019 that seemed to be the new trend to john's point there's more and more financing we actually just launched lendingwell.com because obtaining this financing has gotten a little more complicated as you've got more lenders so we were seeing all cash deals happening a lot as you look at the last 45 days now you're seeing something consistently in the range of 50 to maybe 80 percent cash down we're also seeing a lot more contingencies on the deal that 
I'll agree to pay you full and fair market value, assuming in 18 months, we have the same amount of assets and revenue that you had at the end of 2019. So everyone's working to try to still get these deals done, balance the short-term risk that the buyer has in terms of managing cash flow, but making sure you know, they're fair and they're honoring the seller's commitment to their clients and having built this business over 20 or 30 years. What are the sorts of things that you're seeing right now that will affect and impact long-term valuations? Do you see any of those things that you just talked about really truly affecting some of those long-term valuations and the payouts and the uh, purchases that the advisors are going to have? It's funny you ask, because we have that question a lot, both sort of a micro level from individual deals, but more of a macro level, like you're asking here now. And I would put actually kind of a positive spin on it. You know, is there going to be a long-term impact on valuations? Yes, but not in the way that I think most people expect. I think the long-term impact on valuations is actually going to be positive as a result of this, because we're already seeing advisors, big and small, doubling down on their use of technology. They're beginning to use Zoom, WebEx, GoToMeeting. There's a number of different platforms that can be leveraged, but they're beginning to adopt a remote service model to be able to service these clients. They're using technology more than they've ever used it before. And that's something the industry has needed for a long time. But when your average advisor is in their mid to late 50s, we can't be surprised that there's not a lot of technology adoption historically. So I think this has been a great kick in the pants for a lot of firms to really start to leverage technology, which is ultimately going to help them be more efficient, service their clients on a bigger and broader scale. So I think valuations are actually going to be improved because you're going to see more efficiencies in these practices, not less. It also opens up the door to be able to purchase practices from outside the geographical area that you might be. Is that true? That's exactly right. Because you think about practices typically when we do valuations, for example, the consistent answer is that they've got 75 to 80% of their clients that are local. And, and as a result, they just haven't really needed to leverage any kind of remote servicing technologies to take care of these clients. They meet with them face-to-face once a year. They communicate via email and phone on an as-needed basis. Well, now the world has been upended and they're, they're having to leverage these technologies. So all of a sudden, when you start thinking about, you know, we're based here in Portland, Oregon, if I'm going to acquire a practice prior to 2019, I'm probably really only going to look in and around the Portland market, maybe into Washington, Northern California within you know, a couple hour flight at most. Now, because they're adopting more of these technologies, and again, your buyer's already in their you know, mid 40s, for example, so they're a little more technologically savvy, you're spot on. They're starting to expand their criteria for where they could acquire practices because if I'm based in Portland and I acquire a practice in Omaha, Nebraska, for example, well, I'm now starting to get used to servicing clients remotely. So my chances of actually getting an acquisition done and finding deals just went up exponentially because I can look beyond just my own backyard. Where do we find these practices? I mean, uh, there's so many practices for sale and there's a lot of buyers. How does one even begin the process of finding a practice to purchase? Ah, the million dollar question. I mean, that really, that is the challenge. Where do you find these deals? Because the funny thing is, when you look at the average right now, our year-end average for 2019, we had 54 buyers for every seller. 
And that's a nationwide average. That includes the Dakotas and Arkansas. I mean, you look at states like California, Florida. I mean, you're actually looking closer to 100 buyers for every seller. But that doesn't make any sense when you compare it to the demographics in our industry and knowing that the average advisor is, I think I saw a quote in most recently, 58 years old. Our typical seller that we're working with on an exit is in their early 60s. There are a lot more advisors out there that are of the succession demographic. They're just not waving a white flag. So where do you find them? Short answer is, you know, don't look past the obvious spots. You know, check a website like ours. We don't have any kind of membership fee. We have a tab on the website that has sellers listings, and you can see what's currently available. You can inquire to them. We can get you connected. But you know, our peers, uh, FP Transitions list practices, check those easy spots. You'd hate to miss the softballs. But I'd tell you, 80% of the deals that we work on are not listed. They are done where we simply act as an intermediary because the buyer was active, they network, they talk to their favorite wholesalers, they talk to their least favorite wholesalers, and they let them know they're prepared and ready to grow through acquisition. Do you have anybody that you could introduce me to? You know, we've got a great saying, you know, talk to the wholesalers. They're sort of the advisor's bartender. They know everybody. They know what's happening out there. People just they have good conversations with their wholesalers. So you got to be out there. You got to be active. You got to network. You can look at the online listing platforms. Great spot, but don't stop there. This is a relationship-driven business. You got to get out there and network. I mean, I can't tell you how many deals we've done where we ask how the buyer and seller met. And the buyer says, you know what? I went to the local FPA chapter meeting for a change. You know, I usually skip them. I went. I stood in the back of the room. And I looked for the advisor with the whitest hair or the least amount of hair, and I went and sat next to him. And that's a recipe for success, as simple as it sounds. Using wholesalers as a reference like that is absolutely fantastic. They are out everywhere. Even today uh, in the stay-at-home orders, they're still making the phone calls. They do know what's going on in other practices. David, that was a great, great piece of advice there. Now, what are some of the biggest issues you've seen with buyers? Biggest issue, especially looking short-term in the last 45 days, has been sort of that juxtaposition of short-term and long-term needs. You know, short-term, they need to make sure that the deal still cash flows. And long-term, they need to make sure that they can put together a deal that you know, will allow their business to continue to grow and thrive, that they can honor the seller and the business that they have built. And that is obviously a challenge because the seller has their expectations of what their business is worth. And while there's a lot of different valuation methods, most sellers, if you've ever dealt with one as somebody listening, they, they have a unique value methodology and it's called a needs-based valuation. <laughs> they have the number that they need to be able to retire. They have the number that they need to be able to say yes because they've spent so much time building this business. So for the buyer, they have to find a way to make that number still work despite current short-term market conditions, but build a deal that is sort of recession-proof, which has always been our mantra, but that's a lot harder when you're sitting in the midst of a recession, correction, whatever we want to call it. So balancing short and long-term has been the biggest challenge for our buyers. Now let's flip it on. What are the biggest issues that you've seen with the sellers? Biggest issue at this point, frankly, is living in the past. We, we are in a very unique time. I can't tell you how many times I've heard the word unprecedented. That will be the only time I will say it because I've heard it too many times. But we are in very unique times. And as they look at selling their business, 
the fact that the you know market has had the correction it has had as of late for any number of reasons, obviously, they have a number in mind. And that number was probably a little unreasonable back in 2019. When you look at the short-term Q1 billings for these firms and then the number that they expect, it becomes even more irrational and harder to justify. So it's hard to balance that because your earlier question on, is there been a long-term impact on valuations? No, or yes, but in a positive way. But for the sellers, when you're selling your business today, is your business worth less? Well, your Q1 billings are down. The question is by how much? And in some cases, it's a small single digit number. Some cases it's double digits and it's not so attractive. So you have to find ways to structure these deals. And the biggest challenge I think for our sellers at this point is remaining flexible. You can still make the number work and get the same value that you had pre-COVID-19, but you're not gonna get a duffel bag full of cash at closing. It's just too risky for the buyer. It's too risky for the banks that are lending the money to the buyer. So we have to be flexible and, and that's challenging. And I can sympathize with these sellers because you're only ever going to sell your business once. And now is still a great time to sell the business. You hate to sit on the sidelines and wait for a market recovery because, well, that could be a long time. So you've got to find a way to balance that, again, the short term and the long term be reasonable and stay flexible. But that's easier said than done. This is the million dollar question, literally, which is how do you value books? You know, we always hear all of these numbers thrown around, David, and how do you do it? And, and is there an average multiple? Short answer is there is an average multiple. And like any good valuation expert or form that provides valuations, the caveat is, Yes, the average multiple on recurring revenue, you know, fees, trails, 12B1s, any of that consistent revenue, you know, month over month, quarter over quarter, average multiple for 2019 year end, and we've seen this hold true so far in Q1 of 2020, was 2.72 on the recurring and 0.88 on the non-recurring. Now, these are top line gross revenue multiples. So the caveat to that is, while it's an average multiple, it's a lot like knowing the average price per square foot of residential real estate in the United States. It's great to know. It's a good benchmark and barometer, but you wouldn't necessarily buy or sell your house based on it. And the same is true here, because when you look at the range of multiples paid, it's anywhere on the low end of two times to the high end of three and a half times with that average coming in at the 2.72. But that's a pretty broad range on a million dollar fee-based practice. I just told you you're worth somewhere between two million and three and a half. It's a pretty big delta. So how do you value these books? We don't use rules of thumb. They, they are helpful. They're important to know. But you actually value these businesses based on either the revenue that they produce or the profits they produce. And the delineation there is, what is a buyer going to acquire? If you're looking at something in the 100 to $200 million AUM range and below, you're really not buying somebody's profits. Because it's a pretty small practice by any measure. A good practice, don't get me wrong. But at 100 or 200 million AUM, you're not really running and operating a business. And so its profits are interesting academically. But a buyer for a practice of that size is really just going to buy the revenue, the assets, and the clients and leave the seller's expenses behind. So the valuation is a little simpler. As you get to the 200 to 300 million and above, 
Now you're really actually talking about sort of a going concern. It's a business, it's got well-trained staff, generally speaking, systems and processes and workflows. So really at that size, you should be looking at the bottom line, the net income that this business produces, and use that as your barometer for valuing it. So how can Finet help you navigate this transition of buying or selling a practice? Yeah, thanks. So Finet has the people, the process, the resources that are in place um, to help practices win at mergers and acquisitions. And there's obviously a lot of interest and activity. We also have a network assistance program for those practices who want to develop an approach to get in front of opportunities in their local marketplace as well. But most important, you know, we, we encourage the use of qualified third-party firms and outside professionals like David and the team at Succession Resource Group. So it's really a team effort across the board. David, since we have you on the podcast today, and we do whatever we can to prepare for this, uh, making sure that we do all of our research, sometimes I don't get to ask the question that I should have asked. So what question should I have asked you about buying, selling, and transitioning a practice that I didn't? Or what should I have highlighted that I didn't? So the first one I would say that we're seeing a lot now in terms of questions that come across is, is now still a good time to sell my business? Should I wait? And to that, I would respond, you don't time the markets. Some of you might, but generally speaking, advisors don't time the market. They tell their clients to not try to time the market. Heed your own advice here. Don't try to time the market because frankly, we don't know, short of having our crystal balls out, which of course we got them put away for now, we don't know when the market will recover. And frankly, let's just say hypothetically, it happens at some point in Q2 or Q3. I know I'm being optimistic, but it's my example. So let's say it happened in Q2 or Q3. Market recovers. How long before you got an actual trailing 12-month revenue figure that is also fully recovered? And really, you don't just want one good year coming out of a correction or a recession. You'd like two or three, really. So now for an advisor who is maybe thinking about selling their business in 2019 or 2020, decides to put things on pause until the market recovers, they may be out into 2023, 2024, before it's really an optimal time to sell the business again. And the challenge there is, you know, how many trillions of dollars have been dished out to small businesses to keep them afloat nationwide by the SBA? Well, you don't think they're going to try to get some of their money back at some point? Well, there's a good chance capital gains rates in two or three years might not be as attractive as they are now. So don't try to time the market is the short answer. Practice values are very similar today, if not the same, to what they were in 2019. I'm not going to say they're any better, but they're not necessarily any worse. The deal terms have changed a little bit, but they're not dramatically worse. So don't try to time the market. Now is still a great time to sell the business. And you've got to look at, honestly, sort of your fiduciary duty in many cases to your clients. Is cutting back from 40 to 50 hours a week to 30 to 20 and as you slow down, is that really in your client's best interests? Or does it make more sense to find a successor who wants to keep working 40 or 50 or 60 hours per week to take that business over? John, do you have any final comments before we wrap up today's show? 
Thanks for the opportunity to be with you. And David, it's a pleasure working with Succession Resource Group. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of wealthmanagement.com. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by wealthmanagement.com. The content has been made available for information and educational purposes only. Wealthmanagement.com does not make any representation or warranties with respect to accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content or of any sites listed or linked to the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service with any questions you have regarding your investment planning.